Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Jason Brennan. Jason is, uh, among other things, uh, an author of of the book Cracks in the Ivory Tower, uh, a book on uh, higher education, uh, as well as an author of a a, a number of other different uh, different books on uh, very interesting topics related to uh, politics and uh, and economics. Uh, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to meet you. So Jason, by, by way of introduction, explain how you set out to write Cracks in the Ivory Tower and what you were hoping to achieve with it. Yeah, you know, that book is sort of a weird, has a weird bit of a bit of a weird genesis, I guess. It wasn't a book that I sort of envisioned myself writing, but uh, what ended up happening was I got a job in a business school, even though I really shouldn't be a business professor. I mean, I'm a political philosopher by training. I have secondary training in political science and economics. And nevertheless, I ended up in a business school, nominally teaching business ethics from time to time. I was teaching a lot of political economy as well. And along the way, I kind of started being interested in organizations and how organizations shape behavior, why people who, generally speaking, mean well and have good intentions nevertheless act badly. And I started taking the tools that I learned from psychology and economics that are meant to diagnose that and just applying them to see, to what I see around me in the academy. So it really was set out to be a business book, business ethics book about the business ethics of the academy, uh, using the tools of economics and psychology to diagnose why people behave so badly, and then like what maybe we can do about it. And the problem was, is the more I started looking into it, the worse things looked. I realized that a lot of the stuff that we're doing, we have this like public facing story that we tell about why we do these things, but in reality, it's best explained by our narrow self interest. We just exploit students and others for our own benefit. Yeah. Talk about what was most surprising in, in writing that book in terms of what, what you uncovered or, 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 or learned or, or what you think people might take from it. Yeah, you know, the thing that I was most surprised by was what I learned about grades. Because when I proposed writing the book, we knew we wanted to have a chapter on grading. Um, we, knew, we thought there were some issues with how grades are distributed and uh, about what it does to people, about the motivational problems it might have, about the, some, some of the arbitrariness of grading. And you know, I'm not like one of these kind of crunchy Hampshire college type hippies where, you know, I don't say things like, I don't think you can reduce everyone to a number, man. Like, I actually think you can put numbers on lots and lots of things, but I just thought that the entire process was rather unscientific. But I nevertheless expected that I was going to discover that grade inflation really is a problem. And we, we kind of went into it thinking we would say something like, well, whether grade or we thought grade inflation exists, but we we're going to say like whether or not it's a problem depends upon what the purpose of grades is. And we were going to talk about how there's maybe nine or so different things you could be doing when you give students a grade. But then in the course of the investigation, I discovered actually the evidence for the existence of grade inflation is incredibly poor. Uh, there really isn't good evidence for it. Even the website gradeinflation.org or .com, whatever it's called, the evidence that it provides is very weak. It comes from bad sources and so on. And uh, so it was a big surprise. So now I'm like a great inflation skeptic, not in the sense that I think it doesn't exist, but more of more in the sense of I don't think we have the evidence we need to know whether it exists, despite the fact that almost everyone believes in it. Hmm. Um, but when you actually go looking for the evidence for it, it's really poor. Really, I mean, just to sort of summarize 
the only person who ever did a proper scientific study on this was a guy named Edelman who worked for the Department of Education. And because he had worked for them, he was able to basically force universities to provide him with all of these transcripts, thousands and tens of thousands of transcripts from a variety of different universities over a multi-decade period. So he could look and see what is the actual average GPA in, say, 1982, 1972, and 1992. And he found that grades went up a little bit towards the 80s and then went back down towards the 90s. And even when you just have that kind of thing where you're looking at changes in the average GPA, that doesn't yet tell you whether inflation has taken place or not. Because when we think about like whether money is being inflated, we need to have some sort of common basket of goods or that we're comparing the money to. We can't just look at changes in prices. We need to see, does this kind of object cost more now than it did in the past? And it's not because of changes in demand. We need to have something like that for grading. We need to see, is it actually the case that students are getting a higher grade for the same quality work? And no one has any evidence of that. No one ever like looks at essays or tests from the 1960s and compares them to now and tries to see like what grade people would get. But it turned out they don't even have good evidence of like fluctuation in grades. And that study is way out of date. No one's really done a similar study since then. And so a lot of things you hear about grade inflation are based upon like student self-reports or other sources of data that are just not very reliable. So yeah, I used to believe that grade inflation was real. And now I think I don't know whether it exists or not. Yeah. What other areas do you disagree with higher ed skeptics or think that they have misguided or? Yeah. Another thing, um, a lot of people who are kind of higher ed skeptics are often quite uh, conservative or right wing. And they think that higher ed does a lot to indoctrinate people into left-wing ideas. I would say that they're right that it's usually going to be the case that if you're a student, you'll be mostly exposed to left-wing ideas. You'll be exposed sort of disproportionately to very far left-wing ideas, uh, more than you would in any other sphere. But uh, the actual evidence that it indoctrinates students is extremely weak. For instance, you know, your typical university professor is quite anti-market. But when we look at students who complete college education, we find that they're actually more pro-market than people who don't. It's not just a selection effect, meaning it's not just that the people who go to college end up being more pro-market, but actually finishing college and going through college makes them more pro-market over time as compared to the average population. So even though students are pushed, a lot of ideas are pushed upon students while they're in school, the evidence of it really changing their beliefs long-term or their voting behavior long-term is really weak. So I'd say, I think to the right wing person, I might say to them, you know, look, you know, you might be right that there are some people in college who want to indoctrinate people. I don't, even, I don't even think that's true of most people, but there are some that do, but they don't, generally speaking, succeed. So you shouldn't really get too worried about this stuff. What, what is your evidence that they don't succeed? Well, uh, because people are taught one thing and they believe another. So for, you know, students are exposed to say a lot of Marxist ideas, but they don't come out being more Marxist um, compared to the average population. They end up being actually less Marxist compared to people who don't go to college. You know, so it'd be kind of like if you went to, if you put a bunch of people in a Christian summer camp and at the end they were less Christian, then the summer camp didn't really indoctrinate them. Similarly, when you look at the ideas that the right complains about, that they think students are being indoctrinated into, you don't generally see those ideas being stronger among the college educated population than not. So that, so I guess it's like, if, really? if they're trying it, they're not working. Yeah. Even some of the things you might think okay. like students are like more pro civil rights, or uh, there might be like more left wing in terms of their um, uh, preferences about civil issues. Uh, a lot of that just turns out to be a selection effect. The students who choose to go to college already think that way. Um, and like being in college doesn't really affect their behavior that much. And then as far as like attitudes towards say like the market and whether they're anti-market or pro-market, uh, their overall behavior at the end is like pretty similar to what it was going in. 
let, let, let's zoom out uh, and I want you to unpack basically how do perverse incentives in higher education cause systematic dysfunction? Yeah. So the, the main thing that we're talking about in the book is to say, when you think, look at people in higher education, uh, they're not saints. They're average people. They do have publicly spirited goals. They do care about some of the things that they say that they care about, but they also care about power, prestige, money, influence, and these other kinds of things. They're just normal people. So what we like to do then is like, look at all the incentives that they face. It's like simple ones and complex ones. Like a good example that everybody knows about to start with is to think about, um, say, teaching versus research as a college professor. The reality is that if you are the world's best educator, uh, you are the world's best teacher at the college level, you will probably get paid something like a third to a fifth as much as a person who's like a really good researcher. You know, so like, for example, one of my former employers had a, a guy who was, he was an incredible teacher. He's such a good teacher that they named the teaching award after him. So they didn't, in order to stop giving it to him every single year. When he was on campus, he was a celebrity. When he goes to alumni events, he's a celebrity. When he walks off campus and goes to an academic conference, nobody knows who he is because he didn't really publish all that much. But then if you're the kind of person who can publish a lot in the prestigious journals or with prestigious book publishers, then you get paid to give public speeches all the time. You get paid to uh, give talks to other universities. You can sell books and make a lot of money from that. Your salary will be a lot higher. You'll work at a fancier university. Typically, you'll have fewer obligations in terms of teaching and service and get more free time to just do research. So it really is the case that all the incentives are aligned to make you a researcher, not a teacher. And not surprisingly, you find things like faculty underinvest in teaching and overinvest in research. They produce maybe a lot of research that no one's ever going to read or doesn't have a lot of influence. They don't revise their syllabi. They don't, they don't do things like learn about the psychology of learning and then apply that psychology to how to teach their classes. So that's a case where like, I think most people know about that. And we bring, we bring that up early on because it's an example that people understand. But then some of the surprising things are things like um, we wanted to look into general education requirements. You know, most universities have things like you are required to take a course in a wide range of different fields. You have to take a couple social science classes, some writing classes, some math classes, some science, some stuff on diversity, some stuff on history, some stuff on foreign language. And uh, the nominal purpose of these things is to ensure that anyone who graduates is well-rounded and broad. You know a lot of, you know, you know a little bit about everything. You know, you shouldn't just be a specialist in one thing. And that sounds really reasonable. I, I tend to share that same view of education that if all you know is physics, you're not really educated. Like you should, a physicist should know a little bit about Shakespeare and a person who is a specialist in Shakespeare, Shakespeare should know a little bit about physics. I, I tend to think that way too. But what we find in the book is, uh, first of all, there's been a lot of testing of do the general education classes work? in the sense of teaching people skills, teaching them knowledge, making them well-rounded. The evidence for this is either non-existent or negative in some cases. And I, we can get more into like that maybe in a second, but even worse is what predicts whether or not you'll have to take these classes. And what we find is that the this individual departments, like foreign languages and English, which are financially at risk. They have a large number of faculty. They have a bloated presence. They don't have a lot of outside funding. They have a precarious job market. It's very difficult for those faculty to get a job outside of academia uh, with their PhDs. Those departments that are most at financial risk are the ones in which you're most likely to be forced to take a class specifically in that department. Whereas uh, departments like 
economics, which is not financially at risk, where economists have lots of job opportunities, they can easily get a job outside of academia, there's lots and lots of money pouring in for research purposes, etc. Those departments, you're very unlikely to get um, a, for- a requirement that you take a class in it. So the biggest predictor of do you have to take a class in X is does that department need your money? And what's going on there is that the departments that need the money lobby extensively to the central, whatever kind of central government system they have at the university to mandate requirements. And they'll always give a publicly spirited argument. They'll say, we need to take, make you take writing classes because, um, you know, everyone should know how to write. And then when like the writing classes don't work, they respond by saying, aha, well, that proves that we need to make you take two or even three writing classes. And in fact, at most universities now in the United States, you're required to take at least two and often three classes in writing, even though, again, those classes just don't succeed in teaching people how to write. So it's it's really a form of rent seeking. It's a way of forcing people, exploiting students, forcing them to take classes in order to line the pockets of the faculty teaching those classes. Uh, it's very depressing, but that's what the evidence seems to show. Yeah. When people talk about sort of the the division between liberal arts and career stuff or, or career education, some of that getting more uh, you know unbundled, do you see that happening? Or how do you think we sort of resolve you know sort of the the what's the purpose of higher education uh, you know conversation? It's not really clear to me what the purpose is. I mean, in the end of the book, we have an entire chapter on like, well, what is a higher education for? And is it worth the investment we're putting into it? And we come up with like seven big ideas of what higher education could be, including things like the point is to have a museum of ideas. The point is to advance culture. The point is to just have people advance knowledge, even if other people don't consume it. Or the point is to prepare people for call for their careers. You know, and I don't know what the answer is to that. I don't really know what the nail is for which higher education is the hammer. I think there's reasonable disagreement. But the unfortunate thing is, regardless of what you think the nail is, higher education has a tendency to be a, a bad job or do a bad job hammering in that nail. So when it comes to uh, career preparation, what you find is that uh, it doesn't seem to prepare people for most jobs. It doesn't pre- seem to prepare them or give them many skills. So the, the basic premise of liberal arts education, and this pains me to say this because you know, I originally set out to be a liberal arts professor. I guess I'm, I'm not anymore, but I set out to be one. Uh, and, I, and I love taking liberal arts as a student. Like I, I loved consuming all this knowledge. But the basic premise or psychological premise behind liberal arts is, you know, we're not going to teach you how to write a business memo, but we'll teach you how to write um, an analysis of a complicated poem and how to write a philosophy essay and how to read a difficult text and turn that into a historical narrative. We're going to teach you all those skills, and then you will transfer those skills to your workplace because all the things you learn about mathematical reasoning, scientific reasoning, social scientific reasoning, et cetera, analytical reasoning, this can all be used in your career. So we're going to train you with these soft skills that you can apply anywhere. And you see this on websites like Yale's website at one point said, you know, we don't just train you for your first job. We train you for every job you're ever going to have. Sounds wonderful, but is it true? Unfortunately, no. Uh, So it's true that when you practice these things, the skills that you learn in like analyzing a Shakespearean sonnet can be used to make you write a better business memo. That's absolutely true. But the important question is, will people actually transfer those skills? So educational psychologists have been studying this for almost 100 years now. The, the phenomenon is called transfer of learning. If you Google, you know, in quote marks, transfer of learning, you'll find the research on this. Uh, and they study at great length, do students spontaneously engage in transfer of learning? Do they, When they learn a skill in one domain, do they transfer it to another? 
And the answer is for the overwhelming majority of people, regardless of whether they're smart or not, low IQ or high IQ, whatever it might be, they don't. Uh, for most people, learning is highly compartmentalized. And the way that they learn to do something is by doing that same thing over and over again. Only a small percentage of people have a tendency to engage in transfer of learning where they take a skill learned in one domain and apply it somewhere else. Uh, and frankly, and oddly, the people that are most likely to do that are the kinds of people who become college professors. So in effect, what's going on with education is our model of learning is inaccurate and it applies to the professors, but not most of the students. Now, when I learned this stuff, I found it, at first I was very depressed by it because I thought it meant that I was like basically defrauding my students or unbeknownst to me, giving them an inferior product. But um, my response as an educator myself has been to stop trying to make transfer happen and instead to change the kinds of projects and work that I give my students so that whatever it is I want them to do out there in the world and whatever it is this, this thing I'm teaching them is supposed to do for them, I have them practice using it. So I don't, I'm not trying to have transfer of learning take place. I'm having to actually, I'm getting them to actually uh, apply the knowledge up front so that they're learning to do what I need them to do. Totally. Can you talk about why college tuition has been skyrocketing? Like what's the most, uh, you know, accurate, concise explanation? So I'm not exactly sure, but I can tell you what the big leading theories are that seem to be the big contenders. So one contender is just, there's this thing called Baumol's cost disease, what that means is, um, and this is this was originally by a guy named William Baumel, uh, who's an economist. He was looking at like the price of, say, opera tickets, and he said, "Here's the problem: uh, the technology for opera." He's writing, you know, back before there was the internet or things like that. The technology for opera really hasn't improved much in the past hundred years. It's an opera house in like 1960 and the opera house in 1860 are more or less the same. They're still labor intensive. They require the same amount of talent. You have the same number of workers for the same amount of audience. So. The problem with that, though, is as technology makes other people more efficient, it makes it so that like a person working at a McDonald's is a more efficient cook than someone would have been 50 years ago. It makes an auto mechanic more efficient. It makes almost every aspect of life more efficient. Like, like people are more efficient in factories and so on. What happens is like the general price of labor gets to be more expensive because when you're hiring an opera singer, you're not just competing with all the other opera houses that might hire that person to sing, but effectively you're competing with anyone who can use that person for any purpose. So basically the general price of labor goes up and up and up, but the, the productivity of labor hasn't gone up. So what happens is then uh, you, you basically have a less and less efficient system. And that's why opera houses that used to turn a profit and were able to subs like subsist just by selling tickets to customers by the time you get to like the 1950s and 60s, they're overwhelmingly dependent upon donations by rich people. They can't subsist just on ticket sales. So that's called the cost disease. And it's a lot of people think uh, it applies to higher education. There's a few reports out there that argue that almost all of the cost is because of this. In effect, it's like college, the, the technology for delivering education in the traditional manner isn't really any better now than it was 100 years ago, but the price of college labor goes up and up. So productivity stays the same, but the price goes up because you're competing against all of their possible uses of the labor. So it becomes ever more expensive. So that's going to be part of it. I, I don't know if that's 70% of the story, 50% of the story, but it's got to be at least a significant section. But another bit of it has to do with just the fact that there's colleges do a lot more. You know, in 1960, if you go to like the University of California in 1960, like you're probably going to have to pick your own classes. And you'll, you won't have like an advisor who holds your hand through the entire process of selecting classes and things like that. You won't have as much, say, 
you, you won't have like a residence life board that's quite as big that provides all these opportunities. You won't have a rock climbing wall. You won't have a, like a wide range of other administrators providing different kinds of services. So when you look at the growth of education, and this, this is a story most people have heard, I think, but when you look at what has grown in education, it's non-faculty staff. So between say like 1970 till now, the total number of undergraduates has gone up by maybe about 75%. Between uh, 1970 now, the total number of full-time faculty, you know, both tenure track and non-tenure track, but full-time faculty has gone up by about 75%. Uh, so the ratio of students to fa- full-time faculty has been roughly about 24 to 1 across the United States since 1970. It got a little bit worse in the 1980s, and it's a little bit better now than it was in the 1980s. Uh, however, the amount of non non-faculty staff, this vice dean, the directors, the coordinators, the associate director, the deputy dean of this, the total number of offices and so on that are not faculty related has gone up by many hundreds of a percent, you know, like something like 400%, depending on whom you're counting in this, in this figure. So most of what you're paying for in college now is not so much instruction, um, but you're paying for all of those various kinds of deans and deanlets, associate deans, deputy deans, uh, assistant coordinator, coordinator directors, et cetera, in lots and lots of offices. That's where your money's going. And that's the preponderance and explosion of these things it contributes a great deal to the cost too. So those are really like the two big stories, cost disease and administrative bloat. And is there, there this idea that the perverse incentives, basically like the more money colleges get from the government, they just like one, I think 65 cents of that goes to administrators or something, or, you know, some small percentage of that goes to education. And then also it's just, it like directly correlates with how much they charge. How, how does that work exactly? Is it because of the way the, the loans are structured or? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So the number uh, I'm trying to think about last time I looked up the exact numbers uh, on the department of education's website, they have this uh, whole database with all these numbers. Um, yeah. It was like back in 2014 or 2015, I wrote a paper, I looked the numbers up and it was something like, the total amount of expenditure by universities in like 2015 was roughly about half a trillion dollars, you know, about $500 billion. And of that approximately a hundred to 110 billion was going to faculty salary. So that's like the money that's being paid for, for instruction, which means that, you know, and, and large and also pretty significant chunk of that was for research. So maybe about another hundred billion or so is for research. So if you think about the teaching and research aspect of education, you're getting, maybe a minority of it is of the money is going towards that. The majority is going towards other things. And some of that includes things like faculty travel and so on that we might want to include for faculty expenses. So think of like the perverse incentives everybody faces. Imagine that you're like the provost or a president of a university. Like you become president of, let's say James Madison University in like Virginia, you know, smaller, a good, but small kind of college, like regional state university. And you, that's your career track. What you want to do as a fa- as a president is be able to show how you greatly increased the budget of that place. You want to get a bunch of new faculty, get a bunch of new donations, get all sorts of money coming in. And you can say, I took a university that was spending, I don't know, like a hundred million dollars a year. And I made it a $200 million a year operation. I made it a bigger deal. And then you do that for five years. And then that's something that you can use to get like your next job at a better college 
Like you're trying to look up, jump up and, and deans and others who are like heading individual schools at these universities have that same kind of thing. The way that they prove that they're successful and thus get their next job, get a higher salary and so on, work at a better university is by increasing the number of programs, increasing the number of faculty, getting donations. And oftentimes the way that this works, um, it, it's an open secret that this happens is you might get a donation where someone agrees to say fund um, a tenure track professorship for five years and they pay for the first five years. And then at the end of the five years, you, the school are supposed to take up the rest of the expense and you don't get any further donations. But the dean will agree to that because the dean knows that five years down the line, he'll probably go to some other university. He'll he'll get promoted by going like, now rather than being like the president of, you know, a second tier university, now I'm going to be the president of a first tier university. Or rather than being a dean, I'm going to now become a president or something. So he knows that like the expense will be paid for by somebody else. They'll have to deal with the problem. And that's just like the deans and the presidents. Uh, when you get further down, you have the same issue that it's very hard to judge the output of administrators. You know, as a faculty member, people look at things like how many people am I teaching? How satisfied are the students? How much am I publishing? Where am I publishing? Is my public, are my publications being cited and talked about? That's the, it's like at least somewhat measurable. For a lot of administrative work, it's hard to measure what it is you're doing. So it's important to kind of look busy and look like you're doing a lot of work. If you're trying to get more prestige and money for yourself, the best thing you can do is have your office do more stuff. Like maybe your office was created for a particular narrow purpose, but if you expand that purpose over time, you can then go to your boss and justify getting an additional salary and raises and so on, and also have more people working for you. If you go to your boss and say, I need a raise, and he, he might say, well, why do you need a raise? And you're like, well, it used to be when you hired me, I had three people reporting to me, but now I have seven people reporting to me and 14 people reporting to those seven. So I'm managing a large office. Obviously, I should be paid more. That kind of thing makes you look more prestigious. It justifies a higher salary. It justifies a promotion. It justifies hiring you at another university for a bigger job. So we have these internal perverse incentives to create more administrators because it benefits the administrators to do that. I'm not saying that that means we shouldn't have any administrators. I'm not saying that therefore all of their work is useless, but it is to say that there are perverse incentives to increase bloat and to engage in what we call mission creep. Have we re- recreated uh, sort of the perverse incentives of healthcare? Yeah, I think I think it is a good, actually, a very good analogy to healthcare. I mean, healthcare has its own internal perversions and weirdness, but a lot of the things are kind of parallel, including um, not just the fact that once you get a bureaucracy going, the people who work within the bureaucracy have incentives of their own. But another thing that happens with healthcare that happens in higher ed is that a lot of the costs are borne by third parties, right? So. Most students are getting some degree of financial aid, and that's being paid for out of endowments or by donors and so on, or by government grants and grant government subsidies. Governments are, of course, subsidizing students and paying for them. And when, of course, when you subsidize people, they consume more. You know, like I love buying guitars and guitar amps and stuff like that. Like I buy way more than I really need. But if the government started telling me, okay, from now on, uh, for every thousand dollars worth of guitar gear that you, Jay Brennan, consume, you only have to pay two hundred dollars. I would go out and buy way more than I already buy. I, I'd like convert my entire bottom floor into a guitar museum with that kind of incentive. So people are in effect over-consuming education in part because it's subsidized. But the worst part of that, I think, is is not so much like the student overconsumption behavior, which I think can be really harmful to students in various ways and harmful to the society in various ways. But what universities do in response. 
So just to, just to sort of illustrate, imagine that the government says, we're really sad that too many young people at age 22 can't afford a good car like a Honda Civic. So what we're going to do is when you turn 22, we're going to send you a $10,000 check so everyone can buy a Honda Civic if they want one. Well, what we expect to happen, what economics says would happen, and when so far, whenever we've looked at examples of this, this is what we find. When you give people a subsidy to buy a, a good from a for-profit company, what the companies do is just raise their prices. They're like, okay, everyone's got a $10,000 subsidy. We'll just increase the price of Honda Civics, not necessarily by $10,000, but by a significant amount. And most of the value from the subsidy isn't really born or captured by the people you gave the subsidy to. It's captured by the company selling. Now that's for-profit corporations that people I think understand that when it comes to like agricultural subsidies or subsidizing cars or whatnot. What about uh, students? So you might hope that um, if we have educational subsidies and we say college is too expensive. So if we just give everybody a subsidy, they'll be able to afford college that universities being not for profit and having a public mission wouldn't increase their prices. But in fact, the few economics papers that have been written on this all get the same response. Actually, what universities do is they raise their price just as if they were Honda dealers. Uh, so we give people, we give student colleges expensive. So we give students subsidies. Colleges respond by raising the price of college and doing more stuff because they're getting more revenue. And thus we need to give students even more subsidies because it's become even more unaffordable. Colleges respond to that by increasing their prices even more. So we're getting to this vicious uh, cycle where throwing subsidies towards students does not discipline colleges to be cheaper. It disciplines them to be more expensive. If the government wanted to, could it create better incentives? And if so, how? Yeah, it's hard to see what they could get away with. Um, Because you could imagine in principle, like imagine the government said, we're going to give everybody a $10,000 subsidy to buy Hondas, but uh, we're going to have price controls. Honda is not allowed to charge more. Maybe that could work, but it's really hard to get price controls to work. You know, corporations usually just... um, switch their production over to something else or find some other way to capture the money that can be pretty tricky about that. So I'm really not, it's not clear to me what you could really do. I have spent a lot of time thinking like, what could you do to actually get them to like work better? I mean, one thing would be just to have more targeted subsidies. So an example where subsidies seems to work uh, pretty well is think about food stamps. Like, yeah, economics predicts that if you give poor people food stamps, that will raise the price of food. But because you're giving it to such a small percentage of the people and most people are buying food out of their own pocket, the effect is pretty minimal and it really works. And in fact, food stamps, there's a very successful program that's very good at feeding people and and helping the poor. So if you have a government subsidy system where only a small percentage of people are, um, are actually like getting the subsidy, then it'll probably be more like food stamps and you won't get any kind of runaway cost inflation uh, that we're getting. The other thing you could do is just, you know, a lot of people suggest, well, why don't we just have college funded for free? How about a lot of public universities are just paid for directly through tax dollars uh, and then students don't have to pay to go. And I think if you're attracted to that idea, I think you need to take a hard look at what you're really asking for. Because if you look at, let's say universities in like Europe, um, and I'm not criticizing them, but the way that most universities in Europe are structured, where you have this kind of thing, you don't have to really pay to go and it's paid for by the government. You typically have far fewer services to students. You have lar- often have larger classes. You have less exposure to the professors. Uh, the faculty are paid less often. You don't have like this kind of, pro- you don't have the sort of 
American college experience in Europe, you have something closer to like what is like our high schools where you just, you know, you don't have the rock climbing wall, you don't have the lazy river, you don't have the clubs, you just kind of go to your classes and you live at home. And it's a cheaper, it's cheaper to produce it that way. So if, if you want that, I, I can see why someone on the left in particular might think that that is a better model, but that's basically what you're asking for. What you're probably isn't sustainable is having the kind of educational system we have in the US where college just comes with all of this extra social stuff. It's like a summer camp, like a permanent summer camp, and that's going to be paid for by taxpayers. Uh, it's not an obviously good use of their money given all the other good things you could do with that money. Totally. Where do you disagree with, uh, with Richard Vedder or, or Brian Kaplan in, in their uh, critiques? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think with us, a lot of us comes down to like some details, like, you know, fine details about this or that. Um, I think probably overall we're kind of on the same page. I think maybe the difference between me and some of the other people that have written on this, I'm also thinking about a political scientist named Benjamin Ginsburg, who wrote a book called the fall of the faculty. They often portray it like the administrators are kind of corrupt and the faculty are sort of heroes. Uh, I think Kaplan doesn't do that as much, but some of the others have a tendency to, uh, whereas I kind of think, you know, what we do in our book, Cracks Me Every Tower, is say everyone has perverse incentives and basically everyone's taking the bait. The faculty do bad things, the admins do bad things, the students do bad things, and it's explained by perverse incentives. So, uh, you know, when Brian says things like, what we should do is like not subsidize education as much, um, I think he's probably right about that. I think the overall effect is we make it more expensive and we actually, you know, he, he argues at great length that effectively what happens is we get into a runaway credential system where people, you know, now that everyone has a bachelor's degree in order to have like a credential that sets you apart, you need to get a master's degree. And then once everyone does that, you need to get a PhD. And that's kind of like the problem that you see, say in Germany, which is one reason why maybe making education free is not such a great idea. Like I I have friends who work at German universities and have PhD students. And I'll ask them like, of your PhD students, how many of them are getting the PhD because they want to do research, which is what a PhD is training you for, and how much of it is uh, they're just trying to get a credential so they can get a better job at BMW. And they'll say like, yeah, like 19 out of 20 are there for the credential and one out of 20 is there for the actual learning. So I, I really do worry about if education is free, people might consume it for the wrong purpose. We might simply consume it for the purpose of showing that we're better than others. And as Brian Kaplan says in his book, look, like, you know, if we're like watching, say, a classical, uh, like a classical um, concert, you know, we maybe all would prefer to sit. But if you want a better view, you can stand up. And then once one person stands up, if you can't get that person to sit, everyone else might stand up in order to get a better view. And the next thing you know, the entire audience is standing up, but no one has a better view than they did when they were sitting down. It would be better if we just stayed seated. I tend to think that that's right when it comes to education. Uh, and it's depressing to say that, but when we look at the studies about how much people learn, they just don't really learn very much. So we can't really justify it on the basis of learning. We can't justify it on the basis of social mobility because it tends to disproportionately benefit the privileged at the expense of the unprivileged. We can't really justify it on the basis of learning. Uh, I, I just said that, right? We can't justify it on the basis of um, you know skills for higher skills for work because it doesn't really teach them these skills. So. I think at the end of the day, we should just invest less in education. And again, I, I, I wish that weren't true. I wish the evidence went the other way. Our tuition is just going to go up to a million dollars at some point, or how is this all going to play out? Yeah, you know, it can't, right? It, it's unsustainable. It has to at some point stop. It can't just continue going on forever. I'm not sure where it will stop. I mean, and one of the reasons for that is that like the, 
you know, when you look at like the price, the, the thing that you hear all the time is that, well, the price of education has gone up by 6% a year, uh, whereas inflation has only been going up by 1.9 to 2.4%. So therefore the price of education is like greatly increasing over, um, over inflation and people aren't going to be able to afford it. That's true when you look at the sticker cost, but when you look at the actual cost people pay out of their pocket, it's not quite as dramatic an increase. It's maybe like more like 1% or so over inflation. So that means that we have probably quite a ways to go before we get to the point where it's just completely unaffordable. And also, you know, universities are very good at getting donations and getting other kind of sources of income to defray some of these costs. Uh, They're also good at getting uh, subsidies from governments and so on. And governments have like a lot of money to write. So I think it has to stop. There has to be a stopping point because it has to become become unsustainable. But it's going to be a long time, I think, before we really get there. The thing that would really disrupt it is if, I mean, the, the reason students consume education fundamentally is not because they want to be educated; it's because they want the credential. It's it's sad to say that it sounds mean. I, like I'm a person who cra- who loves knowledge for its own sake, so I, I'm saying I have that mentality. But when we look at what students want, fundamentally, they want the credential. Just to kind of illustrate that, imagine you went up to like the millions of people in college and you gave them the following options. Option one, you get the credential, but you learn nothing, right? Option two, you learn three times as much as you actually learn in college, but you don't get any credential. Which one would you like? Which one would you want to pay for? Obviously, they're going to pay for the first one, right? They, they want, they need it to pay off in part because it's so expensive, they need it to pay off. So if there were a way to eliminate the credentials arm race, if something else other than a college education became the ticket to an upper middle class life, the ticket to getting a good tech job or a good job in banking, a good job in, in government, then you would take away this artificial demand for education. And that would change who goes to college, why they're there. And you might get college working the way that it's supposed to. Um, if on the other hand, if, if people sued universities, like imagine that so there's a book called Academically Adrift by uh, these guys, Aram and Roxa. They're one of the people that did these studies that kind of show that uh, school doesn't teach people much in the way of their skills. Imagine that someone started suing universities successfully for failing to provide the goods that they promised. They make all these promises about how they're going to transform you and improve you. They don't, generally speaking, deliver on those promises. So suppose someone sued them for fraud and said, or some other kind of tort and said, you made a promise, you didn't deliver, I want my money back. And this became like a class action lawsuit around the country. Maybe that would change their behavior. Maybe that would change their structure. But without some sort of external disruption like that, I just don't see how it's going to stop. My expectation is prices will continue to increase up until the point where it's just barely sustainable and then it will plateau. I want to transition a bit to your your thoughts on sort of what's evolved as it relates to the, the professor uh, side of things in terms of uh, what's changed, how, how is that, that uh, sort of constituency uh, doing and what challenges or opportunities uh, you know, are, are present for them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened is partly our fault. Uh, so um, with it, for example, with administrative bloat and so on, you know, a good way of thinking about it is that back in like the 1950s, the typical professor, even at like an Ivy League school or um, Berkeley or Michigan or these other like universities that are heavily research oriented, they still taught lots of classes. You know, you might be teaching three classes a semester. You would all be expected to do advising. You might even do the kinds of things like high school teachers do, where you might like help coach something. You know, you're just, you're doing a lot of service work to the university and a lot of teaching. And then 
when it became clear that like prestige and money were associated with uh, research and not with the other two things, people start trying to do less and less of those things. So instead of like engaging and advising and so on, you start like hiring um, professional admins and that sort of thing. And, and then they would get a life of their own. The story goes from there. So part of the problem with professor, like some of the problems that I've already talked about originated with professorial behavior. We outsource our service work so we can focus on research. But when we outsource the service work, we created a system that led to admin bloat. We don't really have strong incentives to be good teachers. You know, like a good way of thinking about it, and this is going to sound like I'm being overly dramatic and hyperbolic, but it's it's really literally true. At the typical university, faculty do not get promoted or hired on the basis of, the, of their teaching activity or skill really at all. Uh, and even at teaching-oriented schools, they don't. And the reason for that is because the main mechanism that universities use to measure whether you're a good teacher are these things called student teaching evaluations. They just have you teach a class and then in the semester, they ask students, how good of a teacher are you? And that's what they, and you get a score and that's what they use to evaluate you. So the empirical literature is basically univocal on this. There are hundreds and hundreds of studies which try to test the question, does getting a good student teaching evaluation score show that you are a good teacher? If you actually are good at making people learn, does that increase your scores? And the answer is no, right? That's what the evidence shows. If you read the book, I can, there's a whole bunch of citations there and you can like go and read the studies and how they do them. But in reality, the reality is that there's not any significant or interesting correlation between having a high teaching evaluation score and being a good teacher. I even put in the book, by the way, my co-author did too. We get high teaching evals. So I have a personal selfish stake in the system. I benefit from it. I just got my merit review for the year and I got a high merit review score on teaching because I had really good teaching evaluations this past year. I got like a five, a five, a four, nine, six, and a four, eight, eight for the year. So great. So I benefit from the system. Does that mean I'm a good teacher? No, it doesn't, doesn't imply that. What, what that means is that like faculty don't do what you think they would do. They don't do things like learn how students learn and, tra- and change the way that they teach classes in order to make sure students learn a lot. They don't check to see if students are, te- are cheating. They kind of just use the classes and kind of teach them the way that they feel like doing it, what they find themselves interesting, or they might cater to student preferences in the wrong way, like just try to make it easy or fun. Um, we're not really trying to be innovative when it comes to learning. So that's pretty crappy. And then when it comes to research, you know, most of us are doing work that isn't very interesting and isn't very valuable. Um, so I, I think for a lot of faculty, we're just, frankly, we're not contributing very much to the world. Uh, I'm not saying that's true. I, hopefully that's not true of me, but the, the fact is, I think the average faculty member uh, isn't worth the price we pay for them. And, and, and there's a PhD bubble. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's a great job. If, I, I wrote a book called nice work. If you can get it, like, it's uh, all about like how to get a job in higher education and like what it takes to succeed. If you can get a, even a crappy faculty job is still a pretty good job. Like the pay is pretty decent, maybe not a lot compared to like a lawyer or engineer, but like a lousy faculty job is like a job where you really don't have to work that much. You don't have that long hours. You can kind of like figure something out and kind of do the same thing for 30 years. You get to engage in a lot of intellectual play and you get to spend your time thinking about and writing about things that you find interesting. And then the good jobs you know, the, like the fancy job, well, I, you know, what comes as a good job is up to people's opinion, but the fancy jobs at like a Harvard or like a MIT, you get paid many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and you get lots and lots of free time and you have access to travel. You get to see the world and just constantly talk to the smartest people in the world. It's just it's such a great job. So of course, lots of people want it. Uh, but then what happens in most 
in most fields is that uh, you graduate far more people with PhDs looking for those jobs than there are jobs for them. So especially in uh, things like liberal arts, psychology, foreign languages, literature, you just have something like for every every tenure track job that exists in a normal year, there might be five to six new graduates trying to compete for that job. And then when they don't get those jobs, they just hang on year after year after year. So in the book, one of the things we do is try to talk about some of the perverse incentives that lead to uh, increased PhD production. And they include things like if you are a professor, you want there to be graduate students around because they're more interesting to talk to than undergrads. They're sort of like apprentices. They can do work for you. They can grade your papers for you. You can teach graduate classes and they're more fun to teach because you can teach higher level stuff that's cutting edge rather than, you know, introduction to political science, which you can do in your sleep. As an administrator, your school looks to be more prestigious when you have a graduate program. So it's easier to get certain kinds of government subsidies and get certain kinds of uh, donations and so on. And you just look good. If you create a PhD program, you look good and that helps you create, get your next job at the better school. Um, and so we, we have these internal perverse incentives that make it unlikely that uh, the PhD student bloat is going to go away. But again, you know, when I say like it, it's a bad job market, I also say to people, it also depends on where you come from. Like if you're getting a PhD in engineering from MIT, you're going to you're going to have no problem getting a job. If you're getting a PhD in economics from MIT, you're definitely going to get a good job that pays six figures somewhere. Right? On the other hand, if you're getting like a PhD in English from like uh uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like the 125th ranked English program. There's some like school near like Bloomington uh um, not not Bloomington, like somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania that I have in mind. I can't remember the name of it. You're not going to get a job anywhere. So it's, it's, there's some variance, but yeah, we produce way too many PhDs because we have monetary and prestige incentives to do so. There, there are some professors who are trying to, you know, leave the system, you know, I'm thinking of Justin Murphy, Michael Millerman and do research and uh, teaching um, in sort of a D to C the way, the, the way that, you know, some journalists have left New York times and are uh, and the like, and are, you know, going direct on Substack. Do you see that as a viable model for um, a, a alternative for, for, aspiring professors? Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe, maybe for me, I'm like too deep into the system. You know, I'm a big critic of the system, but I admit I like heavily benefit from it and I'm like deep in it, right? Like I'm not, I'm not, I might be heterodox in my critique of it, but I'm like deep, deep, deep in that system. So I, it, it does appear to me that there are some people that are succeeding doing that. I don't know how sustainable it is in the long run. I don't know if this is the kind of thing that could be scaled up. You know, it might be the kind of thing where Maybe there's enough of a market that something like 50 or 60 people can be sustained at a high level of research through these kinds of alternative funding mechanisms, and maybe enough that they can like continue to sort of publish research that actually has an impact on what people say. Like you're you really are advancing the field of physics or whatever field that you're in. But I'm not. You know, it it might be the kind of thing where there's like maybe that much demand for it, and then a few people will capture it pretty early, and it might just stop there. It might be the kind of thing where in the future. There are lots of opportunities for that. I mean, you do have like corporations that hire people um, to kind of do faculty type jobs somewhere else. Like a, a very famous political theorist named Joshua Cohen was working at, um, was he at Stanford? Yeah, he was at Stanford and now he works for Apple. And he does teach these classes on like democratic behavior and so on to Apple employees. But he's basically, it's almost like the kind of Renaissance model to some degree of like the artist who works for the expensive uh, benefactor, the, the, you know, the patron who has all the money, you're seeing some of that kind of thing happen. Is it something that can be scaled up? I honestly don't know. 
I mean, I kind of hope it can. I think that's interesting if it does. And the reason I don't know is because, you know, as someone who's privileged and lucky enough to have like one of the plum jobs at a fancy university, I just haven't had to think about it that much. Totally. So if we're having this conversation in uh, 2030, 2031, 10 years from now, as I'll, I'll close by sort of asking two questions. One is like, what do you expect to be different? Um, if, if anything, like what, what major changes do you, you know, do you, do you see coming? What should be different, <laughs> you yeah. know, in terms of, you know, Hey, likely not to happen, but you know, it, it's somewhat, you can imagine a world in which it did and it should. Yeah. So what should happen? Let's start with that one first. If what should happen is uh, everyone in the country takes a moment and says, we're spending, you know, well over half a trillion dollars a year in higher education uh, a lot of that money is coming out of government resources, money that could be used for all sorts of other important projects about human welfare and so on. I'm not saying even give it back to the taxpayers, just use it for other things that you care about, like better infrastructure or better welfare programs for like single parents who can't feed their kids, whatever it might be. And they look and go, hey, it looks like education isn't really paying for itself. Let's just cut the subsidies in half. It's not really it's not really providing the value we thought it was. It turns out that it's actually disadvantaging the poor rather than lifting them out of poverty. So let's put the money somewhere else. And then there's a lot of pain and suffering in universities and they cut back dramatically on staff. But at the end, we get back to a leaner, meaner system that delivers more value for the dollars that we pay. That's what should happen. Uh, but I don't think it will. I think what will happen instead is over the next 10 years, especially if like Democrats are able to maintain a lot of their power, I think that they will push for federal reforms where some degree of state university education will be free. Maybe it'll be community colleges. Maybe it'll be like the first two years of undergraduate, but they'll in some way make it free to the students. It'll be tax funded more than it already is. I think when that happens, what you'll see actually is a bifurcation of who goes to college, like where they go to colleges. So, uh, you know, right now, Georgetown, Georgetown is a posh university and the average student there comes from a pretty wealthy family, but the university does a great, I, I'm saying Georgetown because I work at Georgetown. The university does a great deal to try to get students from lower income brackets to come to school there and provides them with financial aid and so on. And it works. We actually have like a very high percentage of lower income students because we deliberately sought them out and targeted them and tried to like lift them up. I suspect, however, that uh, when you make education, like kind of free to everybody, you're going to get something like what you see with private schools in the United States right now, where rich kids go to private schools and average kids go to public schools. I think once you get the system where like, you know, you're going to your state university is completely free and going to like a private college that might be maybe fancier overall, or has better resources overall cost you something, even with financial aid, it costs you something then you're going to have more of those students just go to the to the free education in the same way that when you look at who's going to the $30,000 or $40,000 a year private high schools, it's mostly rich kids from rich families. So I kind of suspect that when, if this change that a lot of people are proposing takes place where you get such a high degree of subsidization that state universities end up becoming free or close to free for almost everybody, then very, very rich people will continue to go to the Ivy League schools and their peers and pay the full tuition. And almost everyone else will just start going towards uh, regular school, like state universities. And you're going to get like a big gap in prestige between them and the signaling of them. So I, I tend to think oddly that like subsidizing education makes it more likely that someone like me will only have rich students. Totally. Any, any, no pressure or not. Any last things that we didn't get to cover on, on higher ed that um, would be good to leave the, leave the audience with? 
I would just say like, uh, even if you steal my book, take a look at it because things are even worse than I said. There's a lot of stuff we didn't cover, but there's perverse incentives everywhere. I'm not really sure how to fix it, but I knew, do know that there's something deeply wrong with the system. So what are, know, some, if, what, are the, what are some of the headlines of, of stuff that we didn't cover just so people can know to look for it? Yeah. I mean, we cover things like why do students cheat so much? Let's see, like what would be a better grading system? Why do student evaluations not work? Uh, is neoliberalism ruining education or is it something else? Yeah. You know, I mean, we, I think we hit the really big, big things, but there's just a lot of like fine details that perhaps are like missing now that I think about what we talked about over the last hour. Yeah. Highly recommend the book, uh, Cracks in the Ivory Tower. I've just into some other books as well. We'll have to have you back uh, for, for another episode to, to go into, into some of those. Um, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. Have a good one. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.